The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, Daniel, for reading the passage this morning. I love this psalm. Before we get into it, I want to mention again, um, a lot of times this would be the point in the service when we would take the offering. We're we're not passing a plate uh, during the service, but if you would like to give to the ongoing work of the church, you can go to ChristPres.org slash give um, and do that online. And we also keep an offering basket out on the table out there uh, if you prefer to um, bring your offering that way. All right. This psalm is called the the gracious gift of limitations. Correction, the sermon is called the gracious gift of limitation. And I love this passage of scripture. Let me open with a word of prayer. This is from John Stott. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. Have any of you ever taken personality assessment tests? You know the ones, right? Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, DISC test. They have, uh, they have all kinds of them now, right? They have, they have a, a Winnie the Pooh uh, personality assessment where you line up with a, you're either Tigger or an Eeyore, you know, or whatever. Um, I've taken several over the years, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, DISC, and uh, now I'm a pretty reasonable person, not prone to conspiracy theories and whatnot, but I got to tell you, um, I marvel at how spot on these things can be in their description of a personality, especially when I read words about me. I want to read to you some words from these tests about me, okay? The DISC test. You know what it calls me? It calls me an advocate. Here's what it says. I'm just going to quote things that they tell you in in the test responses. So it says about me, you're inspiring and sought out. You're a great encourager and stand beside your friends. Your optimism and loyalty in relationships makes you loved by many. As an INFJ, I belong to 1% of the population. My descriptor there is protector. Here's what it says about me, guys. You, that's me, have a great depth of personality. You're complicated, 
and can understand and deal with complex issues and people. I'm a nine on the Enneagram. That's, of course, the peacemaker or the saint. Uh, It says this about me. You're easygoing. You are emotionally stable. You're open. You're trusting. You're patient with others. You're good-natured and, and this is the coup d'etat, refreshingly unpretentious. So I just want to take a moment to say, to acknowledge how fortunate for you, right? Those words are like a warm blanket. I am someone. But then you can't, you can't stop because it also flips the coin over and tells you other things. And so then I read words like this. Your greatest fears are criticism and a loss of security. If you are subject to criticism, you tend to lose confidence, become unhappy and immobilized, and finally become physically ill. It goes on. You tend... To not show your upsets too much, except indirectly. Perhaps by, and here it is, perhaps by eating too much, drinking too much, or watching too much television in order to escape into a more comforting world. And I read those words and it makes me want to turn on the History Channel, sit in my recliner, and down a pint of Jenny's bourbon brittle. I'm not kidding. You can almost hear the air just sort of leaking out of the balloon. Because when I read those words, there's a song that rises up in me. And that song is this song. keep going. But that's the feeling, right? I want it all. I want it all, and I want it now, right? No one wants to be told that they have weaknesses. Nobody wants to be told that they have blind spots, much less what they specifically are. You just want to be told you're refreshingly unpretentious, right? But but we all have them, How are you with knowing that you're a person with limits? How are you with knowing that you have limits? And then how are you with knowing what they are? Today's psalm is about limits. It's about being people who are limited. There are just things that we, we, there, there are things that are just too great for us, too lofty for us. And what this psalm does is it doesn't bemoan the limits. It extols them as virtue. What if the limits that you possess are actually a gift from the hand of God? So there are three things that I want to pull out of this psalm. Things that our limits give us. And they're this. Our limits give us the freedom of humility. 
We're free to be humble. Our limits give us dependence on God. We can acknowledge, I need him. And then our limits give us a message of hope for those who are lost. Those who are saying, I don't know which way is up. I'm barely holding it together. How can you help me? We say, we're in the same boat. So our limits give us the freedom of humility. Let's get into that. It starts in verse 1. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things that are too great or too marvelous for me. What's he saying here? What he's saying is he's saying, I'm a person with limits, and it is honest to humbly acknowledge that because I have limits, it means I have a place. I have a place. And so out of the gate, he's going against a lot of what we grow up hearing. And what do we grow up hearing? We grow up hearing, well, you don't have limits. It's just, just overcome. You can be anything you want to be. You can do anything that you want to do. There are no limits for you. The sky's the limit, right? And there is a measure of truth in this. And the truth is that, yes, you will have more opportunities opened up for you if you apply yourself, if you strive for excellence. Most of the time, some of the time, that happens. But not all the time. But two things have to be said here. The first is that working hard does not mean that there are limitless possibilities for you. You can work really, really hard to be a pilot in the military, but if you have terrible vision, guess what you're not going to be? You're not going to be a pilot in the military. Working hard doesn't mean there are limitless possibilities. The second thing we have to keep in view is if the possibilities were endless, then what we'd have to conclude is that our lives really should be things that we make epic in order for them to really count, right? And you hear this, and we see this. It's all around us. We live in a time where the picture of a life is supposed to be epic. The life you're living is supposed to be the best life you can possibly live, right? Listen, it's, it's, it's as though my life has the potential. It just has the raw potential to be an amazing story, but I have to make it amazing. I have the potential to live an amazing story, but I have to make it amazing, which means I have to be the one who establishes my value in this world. That's on me to make my life count. And that is an enormous amount of pressure that has at its base a false assumption. And the false assumption is this, that I must give my life value if it is to have any. If my life is to have any value, then I'm the one who has to add that value to it. Young people, if you're a student right now, if you haven't graduated high school, you're in the, uh, in the pressure cooker when it comes to this. To feel like you have to invent an identity for yourself. You have to create who you are as though there is nothing to you unless you do. And that's just categorically false when it comes to the testimony of God's word. That we're made in the image of God, that he knows us, that he loves us. That Psalm 139 tells us he knows all the hairs on our head, that nothing can happen in our life without him knowing and without him being involved in it. But we feel this pressure to give our lives value if it's to have any. And frankly, it's, it's, a, it's a 
proud place to stand, right? It's a, it's a proud place, even an arrogant place to stand, to feel and to own the responsibility of inventing our own significance as though there isn't any. This psalm tells us you don't have to live under that pressure. You don't have to live under that pressure. We have a place. Eugene Peterson put it this way in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is all about the Psalms of Ascent, by the way. He says this, I will not try to run my own life or the lives of others. That is God's business. I will not pretend to invent the meaning of the universe. I will accept what God has shown its meaning to be. And I will not demand that I be treated as the center of my family or my neighborhood or my work but seek to discover where I fit and what I'm good at. This kind of humility is incredibly freeing. It's a truth that sets us free. Why is it important for us to embrace this kind of humility where where we say to God, I do not occupy myself with things that are too great and marvelous for me? It's important for us to do that because it feeds into the second gift of limitation, which is dependence. Our limits give us dependence on God. After he says, I've quieted my soul, there are things that are too lofty for me. In verse 2, he says this, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. The Hebrew expression here for calmed and quieted actually comes from, it's a a metaphor, it's it's an image, and it's the image of plowing a field level. He's saying, I, I've, I've gone to the, to the turbulent, uneven fields of my soul and I've leveled it. Over the den of culture that says, be epic or else, this psalm calls us to be still and know. Be epic or else, no. Be still and know. And he's saying, God sculpt me into what you will. And he describes himself as a weaned child at his mother's side. What's this about? Well, maybe a good way to talk about this is to look at the alternative. What does it mean to be an unweaned child? An unweaned child doesn't trust yet that his mother will provide. And so he cries out whenever he feels a pang of hunger Because his only comfort at that point is actual gratification. He doesn't find comfort in trusting his mother. He only finds comfort in actual gratification. In other words, he's afraid. He's consumed with making sure he can get what he wants when he wants it. Which is problematic when we want it all and we want it now. Right? But an unweaned child doesn't trust his mother. All he trusts is actual gratification. And so what's at stake in this image is this. Do we trust God to give us what we want? Do we trust God to give us what we need? Or are we holding on to some fundamental distrust of him? Which is really what was happening in the fall, in the Garden of Eden, right? That there was this fundamental distrust that God was somehow holding out that crept in. How do we know if there's a fundamental distrust of God happening inside of us? Well, we ask the question, what satisfies me? What satisfies my soul? 
Is God enough? Or are there things that I need God to give me if I'm going to be content? That's the question. Are there things God needs to give us before we're going to be content, or is God enough? The weaned child takes comfort from being with the one he trusts will take care of him, knowing that the one he trusts will take care of him. His mother's presence is enough. It's enough to calm his anxious heart. The weaned child learns that we want things we can't always have, but we don't necessarily need those things in order to be okay. To be weaned is to trust that we will be given what we need when we need it, and that frees us from worry. That's the most I've ever said in a sermon in my entire life about being weaned. Where does it take us, though? When we recognize that it is God who gives us what we need, then we can begin to look at our limits as part of what we need. So we don't look at our limits as deficiencies, but we look at our limits as part of God giving us what we actually need. And we see this throughout Scripture. One place we see it is with the Apostle Paul when he was talking about the thorn in his side in 2 Corinthians 12. He says this. He says, The thorn was given to keep me from conceit. A limitation was a gift given to him. And he says this, I asked the Lord three times, three times, to take it. But his reply was, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. See, the humbling fruit of our limitation is that it requires us to depend on God alone to give us what we actually need. And the beauty of it is we need that. We need to depend on God to give us what we need. For many people, the idea of spiritual maturity is to grow to such a strong and resolute faith that we never need to ask God for help anymore. But this psalm is saying, look, there are things you're always going to need help with. And when we're content to stand there, when we're content to stand in the place where we say, I have limits, there are things that are just too great for me, I'm learning to trust that the Lord will give me what I need even when I can't see it. When we're content to stand there, you know what it's like? It's like you've been handed a compass in a world full of people who are lost and afraid. And that brings us to the third gift, and that is our limits give us a message of hope for the lost. People who are lost and say, because I'm lost, because I don't know something right now, it is therefore hopeless. And we can say, no, it's not. Verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. There's a shift that happens in this psalm from verse 1 to verse 3 because the psalmist starts out, O Lord, right? O Lord. But once he is content in his limits... And in God's care, he turns from O Lord to O Israel. And we've seen this a couple of times in these psalms, right, where the psalmist begins with a prayer to the Lord and concludes with a charge to the people. He turns from O Lord to O Israel. He has a message. What is it? The message is, put your hope in God. 
Put your hope in God for everything that you perceive that you lack. Hope in Him because in Him you actually lack nothing. There's nothing easy about this. Embracing our limits is a universal struggle. People have been doing it since the invention of limits, right? And we're all in various stages of the fight. Some of us, some of us have been tempered by the real-life learning, the real-life... Uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the, the crucible of being tested, where, we, where we've come so close, so face-to-face with our limits that it's brought about a humility and, a, and an acceptance in us. Some of us are not there yet. Some of us still think we have the world by the tail, and it's just a matter of figuring it out. It's a matter of winning. Um, but we're all in this struggle at some point, and because we are, the struggle of embracing our limits gives us a relevant message of hope to a lost and hurting world. We all want to know what can make us whole. We all want to know what justifies us and establishes our worth. What gives me worth in this world? What establishes me here? And the psalmist raises his eyes to address his people. Hope in the Lord, nothing else. You were not meant to be everything. He was. When we grasp this and trust, when we trust that growing comfortable with our sense of place is part of God's good gift to us, with our limits in play, we become free to not only be at peace with our limitations, but to actually extol their virtue. What are some of the virtues of limitation? Let me just conclude with a few of these, okay? Some of the virtues of limitations. Limits drive us into community. We need others. And limits drive us there. Limits guard us against having destructive expectations of ourselves and of others. If you don't accept that we're people with limitations, then you will put impossible burdens on yourself and on other people, expecting them to be what they cannot be. Limits guard us against that, against having destructive expectations of ourselves and others. As a result of that, limits then free us to admit that we have blind spots. It's a very liberating thing to acknowledge, I have blind spots. I have limits, right? Even when it comes to our own self-awareness, I have limits. And what this does is it fosters patience. It fosters mercy for people. Limits make our affirmations of others genuine with a real desire to see our loved ones flourish in their giftings because we believe that we have a place. If you've ever worked on a team, you know this. You know this. I, I work on a team. And my team that I work with, they see me and they see gifts that I have. But they also see limits that I have. And they make up for those limits with gifts that they have. And so when we're working together in a healthy way, and there's something that needs to happen, and it's clearly not in my giftedness, and somebody else says, that is in my giftedness, why don't you let me do that? 
At the same time, they're affirming their giftedness and they're affirming mine by acknowledging my limitation. Does that make sense? Is that what I just said there? It makes for a stronger team. For us to be able to say to one another, you're great at this, you're great at this, I have a weakness here, but you have a strength there. Before God, just a couple more. Before God, limits remind us that we need a Sabbath. God made us to be people whose tanks run out. What a gift that we need. And then he gave us Sabbath rest, right? So he said, I'm going to give you just physical, mental, emotional capacity. And I'm going to tell you one day out of seven, focus on me. Focus on your family, focus on your people, focus on your community, focus on serving. Stop. Rest. Limits cultivate humility. They assault our pride. They remind us that God is our only perfect provider. And he gave us a place in his world that is full of meaning and value. And finally, we we find our contentment in who we are and who we were made to be before God, not in perfection. So I'm content before the Lord, not content in if only I could be perfect. There are gifts that you bring into your relationships that other people need. But this psalm gives us more than just a pat on the back that says, hey, you're good at some things, right? What it does is it reminds us that we were made to depend to depend on and to hope in God as the way of finding and being content in our place in this world. And so my prayer is this. May you hope in him. May we all hope in him in the face of our own limitations. And in the face of our own limitations, may he mature you and may he humble you and may he cultivate your dependence upon him in such a way that it lifts your head with the message of hope to the world around you where you can go from, oh God, to oh Israel. That you can bring this message of hope to a world around you that you don't have to be perfect because God alone is that and God alone is worthy of your hope. It's a gracious gift, limitations. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the way that you have made us to be a community, the way that you have made us to be people who really do depend on one another, not in word only, but we really do need each other, that there's a part of our lives that is deficient without the input and the influence of others. Lord, help us to lean into that. Uh, Help us to want and to long for humility to mark our hearts. Uh, Help us to long for a deeper kind of dependence on you. Uh, Help us to be people who, who long to be proclaimers of a message of hope to those who are lost and without a compass in this world. And Lord, would you use the limitations that you put in our own lives to bring about those things. Be with us as we now come to your table. Uh, Lord, this table that reminds us of a limit that we could never overcome, and that is we could never reconcile ourselves to our maker but you have, and you've addressed it perfectly, and you've given yourself for that. So, Lord, we thank you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
As we now prepare to come to the Lord's table, let's begin with a confession of faith. This is called uh, the welcome of Jesus. I ask you this question. How does Scripture describe the humility of Jesus Christ? Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. What a beautiful, beautiful passage from Philippians 2. We come to the Lord's table to remember that everything we lack, he has given and he has provided. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he had his disciples gathered in a room and he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way later, he took the cup and he blessed it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the remission of your sin. The Apostle Paul said, whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This table is an exercise in remembering and proclaiming, remembering what Christ has done to restore us to God and proclaiming. So it really is, it follows the pattern of the psalm, O Lord, O Israel, that we begin by remembering him and proclaiming to one another what it is that he has done. Because it is that, it is a table that is a profession of faith. If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when you take these elements, that's what you're confessing. That's what you're remembering and proclaiming. You're remembering the finished work of Christ on your behalf to reconcile you to God through his life, his death, his resurrection. It's a very specific thing that we're believing and remembering and proclaiming. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if it wouldn't be accurate for you to call yourself a Christian, because this is a profession of faith, we ask you to not take the elements, but to observe what's happening in the room with those who are, because this is a Christian practice around the world where people come to say, this is the heart of it, is that I needed reconciliation with my maker, and he has given it. And he's given it in the person of Jesus Christ who lived in my place, died in my place, and gave me life in his name forever.